Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Thanks again for joining another episode of the Foundation Podcast. You know that on this podcast, we like to talk about policies, but sort of from a, a general perspective, why they matter to you, even if the specific policy area we're discussing in a given week is something that doesn't seem to be relevant to you. And so that's a long-winded way of saying that I assure you that every single person listening to this podcast today will be interested in hearing from the wonderful expert we have with us. Sam Duell from Excel and Ed is here. He's the Associate Policy Director for Charter Schools. You might say, gosh, I've heard about charter schools. I drive by a charter school every day, but I don't know what charter schools do, and I don't know what I need to think about them. Well, guess what? Over the next 45 minutes, you are going to hear from one of the leading experts in the charter school movement. And I assure you, regardless of your age, regardless of where you live, you will be interested in hearing from Sam Duell. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Sam, before we jump into charter schools, one of the customs we have here on the Foundation podcast is that our guests answer this question, what is your story? And by that, we mean each person who comes to our podcast is doing something important, even though I think everyone is very humble about that. But you're, you are doing something important, and you're engaged in a policy area that affects children and American society disproportionately. So before we jump into the work that you do, just tell us briefly how you got to where you are. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, just as a clarification, my story's not completely written yet. I'm still breathing, and oh, so I yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's being told as we speak, but I uh, started my career as a teacher, a uh, special education teacher in a traditional public school in California, and I was affected uh, uh, by the folks that I worked with. I fell in love with my community and my kids, my students, and I think the thing that broke my heart the most in working with those kids was a lack of expectations for them, specifically around uh, where they were placed during the school day. Mm -hmm. And so I worked very diligently to make sure that they were included in the general education curriculum. Um, I also worked with the teacher union there during that time. Um, It's California, so you're not gonna get rid of it. So it's, you know, you gotta deal with it while you're there. Um, Interestingly enough, I I left that time, went into the charter school movement, um, became a, a school administrator, and then a central office administrator. Ended up running the charter school office at the Oklahoma State Department of Education. Um, And then started working in in nonprofits in the policy world and now the foundation. Well, thanks for that explanation. As a fellow educator myself who left the classroom to do some administrative things, I think I know the answer to this question, but what was it like moving from the classroom into an administrative role? That was the hardest time in my life mm-hmm. um, for both personal and professional reasons. My son was born nine weeks early, mm-hmm. the first year that I was an administrator. Oh, goodness. Um, and so it was not only a huge job transition, but it was a huge personal transition as well. And I think for me, oddly enough, policy is the best fit for me right now because 
um, teaching and being a school administrator is such an emotional uh, contribution. Um, that it was difficult for me to be a good dad and a good husband at that point in my life. And so I'm, I, I miss it. I'm happy. I love my kids, uh, my, my students, um, but I'm also ha- I'm happy where I'm at. Well, that's well said. I know that a lot of us who have moved from the classroom into administrative roles and into now policy roles miss the classroom, and, and we always think that we're, we're teaching. Not that we have all of the answers, but that when you have the heart of the teacher, you can't really turn that off. And I was, I was reminded that, that, that education is not the only industry for which that is true. For example, here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, we have a healthcare center, and the gentleman who leads that is a retired pediatric cardiologist. And I asked Dr. Dean Waldman all the time, do you, do you miss operating on little kids' hearts? And he said, yes. But he said, now, through my policy work, I get to affect the health care they have. And I think that's true in education for all of us who work in education policy, you focusing on charter schools. So thanks for that explanation. I think it's really important for the average listener who is interested in policy and may even be an expert in a particular policy area to understand what motivates those of us who do this work every day. It really is a calling, even more than I would say it's a profession. I think too often today we forget that people are people, and uh, they have stories. And so I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about my story, but also to hear yours. Because I think if we can recognize our our you know, that the person across the table is a human being and they are a person, they've had experiences, um, and that you recognize their existence. Um, it makes the conversation more real, and I think it also makes disagreement okay. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking that when we take that approach here, we'd like to say we put a human face on our policy, that it helps us to eradicate, if not very intentionally undermine labels especially about ideologies. Not that those ideas aren't important. I would be the last person to say that. But when it gets to just having civil conversations with everyone, including those with whom we disagree, even on those issues that we really care about, it's really important for American civil society. So you probably had a choice as, as you're at this, this juncture in your profession. You take this administrative step, you want to get into public policy, there are a lot of different sub-areas, if you will, in education policy. Why charter schools? Well, I, um, like I said, I was in a traditional public school system, and it was, uh, it was a broken system in a lot of ways. And I was looking to work with folks who would be on the same team. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, were all, we all had different jobs, um, but we were working in the same direction together. And that teamwork was really important. And I found that in a charter school. And I found that in the charter school movement. I had no intention of going into policy. But um, uh, I just happened to, to <laughs> I'm a Teach for America alum. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was part of the Teach for America program. And they have these trips for alumni where they'll take them out to a state. So they flew me out to Oklahoma and unbeknownst to me, they had all these group interviews lined up, and um, I left Oklahoma with, with a job offer. And it was not my intent to get into policy, but it just kind of kind of happened that way. Sometimes policy finds people who are really good at what they do, and they have that practical knowledge, but they also have, to, to emphasize this point, that, that manner of conducting themselves in policy work that 
cultivates trust and confidence across the aisle, you know, whether it's a partisan aisle or an ideological one. So you work for Excel and Ed. For our, our, our listeners who are not familiar, one of the major players in education policy, why don't you tell us a little bit about the origins of Excel and Ed, what it's sort of Excel and Ed story in the same way that you have a story and policy people have a story, so that our listeners who may not be that familiar understand what the organization does. Great. Well, the Foundation for Excellence in Education, known as Excel in Ed, was founded in 2008 by Governor Jeb Bush. And it, it started with a lot of the principles that he adopted as governor of Florida, his education policy specifically. We're a nonprofit 501c3 organization, and we're mainly state-focused. So we work with state legislatures, state um, uh, commissioners of education, governors, um, and we're a soup-to-nuts organization, so we help with the design of policy. Um, in some cases, we advocate for policy, and uh, we definitely work on implementation of policy. We also have a broad policy set, so anything from K-3 reading um, and making sure that kids can read uh, at an early age to quality policy, which we would call a ref report card, um, and I know that Texas has an A3F report card coming up soon. Praise God. <laughs> and um, we also work on a, a huge innovation set. So anything from college and career pathways to personalized learning. Um, and then we have an opportunity policy set, which I'm a part of, charter school policy, as well as uh, private school choice. Um, we are agnostic in terms of the delivery model for education. We want the best opportunity for every single kid in America. And um, that's what we're doing. We're working to find policy solutions to make sure that happens. So you're, the, the organization is agnostic about the delivery mechanism, in other words, the type of school, and, and might even be a homeschool, I would presume. And, and yet, we understand that for a certain segment of the population, in other words, certain children, that charter schools have a really good track record at being the delivery mechanism of choice. And so what in your experience and your research would be the most important thing to convey to our audience about the success of charter schools for some kids? It's a great question. I might back up a little bit and talk about why people start charter schools. Um, You know, there's a, there's, there's been some talk lately that charter schools are corporations or that they have some sort of nefarious motive. I'm not going to say that they're all um, innocent, um, but uh, most of them are. They're human enterprises, so none of them would be perfect, right? Exactly. Um, but if you look at um, why people start charter schools, you'll, you'll find parents, community members um, who have specific problems and need to address those problems, and so they start the charter school. I'll give you an example. So in New York City, there were two moms who had boys with autism, and they found that schooling for those boys was cost prohibitive, at least the quality that they wanted. And so they founded New York City Autism School, Um, and it's, it's a premier institution in New York City that provides specialized education for kids with autism um, at no charge to those parents. Um, There's another example in in, uh, rural Idaho where they had a school that was closed down for consolidation 
and the community came together and founded a charter school in Upper Carmen, Idaho. Um, and you'll find stories like this all over the United States that aren't necessarily uh, talked about very often, which is charters are formed in many cases to address specific local problems within communities. How do they perform? Um, if we're looking at standardized testing, um, charter schools perform really well, especially in urban environments, um, especially with uh, students who identify as black or uh, Hispanic. And, um, and we see that in research from Stanford. Um, uh, there's a center at Stanford called the Center uh, for Research on Education Outcomes. We call it Credo. And um, they've published several rounds of research since 2009 on charter schools. And anybody who's looking for information on that, you can go to the Credo website and uh, check that out. So charter schools would be, they are, one segment of the education arena. Evidence, objective evidence, whether it's from the Stanford Center or others, and, and we'll get to a, a research paper that we just published jointly with you, suggest very strongly that charter schools perform well. And yet there are skeptics who say charter schools must be able to select the students of their choice so that, and that's how they get these, these great standardized test scores. What's your response to that? I'd say that if charters are selecting students, that they're probably doing something illegal. In other words, the policy does not allow for right. charter schools to choose students. If you look at the policies in the 44 states that have passed laws, uh, it's very clear in every case that there are enrollment policies that require lotteries, that require some openness and transparency in terms of um, how kids are accepted into the school. Um, the idea of a charter is that it would be open enrollment, that it would be a public school, that it would serve the community in which it's placed. Uh, and so um, to folks that say charters choose kids, I would say um, that's, not, that's not supposed to happen. And if it is happening, then um, it can be addressed through, um, through their authorizer, which is the organization that governs them. Which in, in some states might be the state. I guess in most places it would be local or regional. 90% um, of authorizers in the United States are local school districts. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say oh, charter schools aren't accountable to, to local school boards. That's just not true. 90% uh, of the authorizers are, are local school boards. And so if there's a lack of accountability for a charter school, then it's normally the fault of the local school board. Your politeness and civility are very much on display because the, the question about charter schools selecting students, you, you were very kind in responding. The, the way a Texan might say that is, hell no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so you could, you could let me say that. But for, for those of you who are, you might be skeptics about charter school, that's fine. Healthy skepticism is, is part of civil society. It's just not the case that charter schools are allowed to do that in any state, right? Is that a correct statement? That's a correct statement. And, and is it possible that there might be a couple of charter schools who are trying to do that, yes, but even if they were successful in doing so, it would be so statistically insignificant that it would have no bearing whatsoever on the objective measures we use to gauge their success. 
you, in a similar vein, you were somewhat qualified when, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, when you are somewhat measured, when you said that standardized tests are a measure of charter school success. And I think as a fellow educator, I know where you're going with that. But what would be some other measures of success, whether it's about charter schools or public schools or private schools? I think one measure is just to look at the demand and who wants to go to that school. Uh, I think in Texas you have something like 130,000 people waiting to get into a charter. Um, that's a pretty clear indicator that people desire that kind of schooling and um, that placement. And so that's a pretty powerful indicator. I'd also say that there are qualitative indicators like what, the, what are the course offerings, uh, what, what can the school provide for my student. Um, in some cases, it's the philosophy of education. So whether it's a Montessori education or um, STEM, which is based on science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and, uh, but I think also, the, I, I don't want to qualify standardized testing too much. It's been an important part of our education history for the last 18 years. And it's an indicator that anybody from realtors to, to um, parents use. Um, and I think we can see the quality of school indicated in, in real estate values. But the great thing about a charter school is, in, in the majority of cases, they're not under the same zoning. And so people who normally wouldn't have access to a great school can get access to a great school through a charter school. You actually end up most familiar, as would not be a surprise, with the charter school environment in Texas with a more diverse student population at a charter school for that very reason, right? That's right. Uh, recently, um, as recently as this past year, the National Asse Assessment of Education Progress says that um, charter school students in Texas are doing really well. They've seen some gains recently. Um, and I think, you know, back to Credo, they published a Texas-specific study in 2017, and they claim that students in charter schools learn more in less time. Um, up to 17 days of extra learning in the same calendar year when compared with their traditional public school student peers down the street. And Sam, do you have any idea why that's the case? I mean, I, I, could, I could conjecture. I could, I could speculate. We, we love conjecture. Okay. Well, I, I think part of it has to do with school leadership. Mm -hmm. Anytime you give a principal the autonomy and the freedom to address needs as they come up or to project a vision that is cohesive and to build that team like I referenced earlier in the conversation, I think that it's, uh, you, you're going to get better results simply just from a, um, a school management perspective. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, it has to do with time, how folks spend their time. That's one resource that we all share equally. It just has how you use it that makes a difference. And in many cases, in charter schools, they're using their time a little bit differently than folks in traditional public schools. Sure. And I, and I know you, you want to be careful, as I would, that we, we not overgeneralize. There are exceptions to what you said about charter schools and exceptions to what you said about public schools. So we understand that. I think our listeners understand it. The, it, it reminds me, though, of being the last several weeks in a charter school in San Antonio which is a great books, liberal arts, charter school, another flavor that, that parents can choose from. And the headmaster invited me to sit in and, and 
observe the 75-minute discussion among high school sophomores about one of the great texts in Western civilization. There were 25 young men, young ladies around the table, and the, the teacher was profoundly good, one of the best teachers I've ever seen. And this is a Socratic-style seminar, so I've seen excellent lecturers. I've seen far fewer people who can actually facilitate a Socratic discussion, and, and, and this teacher was doing that. The thing that struck me the most was that every student participated. And to the best that I could tell, not because their grade depended on it, but because this teacher had brought alive this subject material. And whether it was that particular great text, or as you said, in, in a STEM school, or maybe a, an arts school, when you have teachers who are allowed to teach, and school leaders who are allowed to lead, the education really is better. And I know that it, as a fifth generation educator, with a lot of family members who are public school teachers, including siblings, that that is what they clamor for, is more freedom to teach and to, to apply their craft. Well, and to, to your point there about that teacher, they probably had a level of content expertise that is uncommon among most teachers in public schools. And that's not a knock on teachers in of most public not. schools, but a lot of these charters uh, that you're referencing, specifically charters that take on the Socratic or the classical education, um, focus their hiring on folks that have content expertise at a graduate or postgraduate level. And that's important. That's an important flexibility in charters because um, in many cases, teacher certification can uh, disallow folks with PhDs in classics or uh, Latin or, or even biochemistry. Um, it prohibits them from teaching in some cases. And so the flexibility of a charter is they're allowed to hire the best teacher possible. I, I, our listeners may not know this, but I, I, they know that I, I was president of a small liberal arts college in, in Wyoming, but before then started a K-12 Catholic school in Louisiana. It was not a charter school, it was a private school. But what you just said was really true, and the state of Louisiana was calling me all the time, good people. I mean, we're not, I'm not bashing the system, or at least those people. They said, Kevin, you, you're the head of the school, and you're only your lower school teachers are actually eligible to be certified. And I said, yes, because this is a great book school, and so I need people who are Latin scholars. I need, we don't teach social studies, we teach history. Right. We teach geography. Right. And we teach literature. And I need these students whose parents are sacrificing a great deal to pay the tuition so they can go to a very fine college to be able to teach. And I would love for whomever is in the College of Education working very hard to get their education degree and teacher certification to be able to come over to the school and teach. But the problem is they don't have the content knowledge, not because they're bad people or they aren't smart, but because they have decided that in terms of their own lifetime or, or career return on investment, that's the track they want to take. And so this went on and on and on. And it did not get better until Governor Jindal took over. And he and his education staff understood the importance of this. And so then we were given the ability to sign a waiver. And we had to take some education courses. Sure. I've spent 20 years as a teacher. I don't even have half an hour yeah. of education work. I, I don't think I'm a bad teacher. It may not be a great one. But I think it's really important for Americans who are trying to understand about some simple reforms to education. One of them might be the teacher certification process. Well, this is, a, I think, a good example of how... 
um, good intentions lead to bad places. I, well I, I mean, I don't doubt that teacher certification came from a place of wanting to professionalize the, mm-hmm. the field and the career to make it more valuable. But I do think that in many cases, um, it's turned into sort of a Rube Goldberg machine, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, when in fact we could, we could simply go to uh, uh, the, the, the local graduate school of education, not the graduate school of education, but the local graduate school and find some of the best teachers who hadn't even thought about teaching before. Yeah, I, I think about the gentleman who, who taught economics as a former banker at, at the school in Louisiana. Did he have some things to learn about teaching? Of course. That was more generational than it was anything else. He's very good at human relationships. And so I just love those stories about people who've had other professions coming into the classroom because ultimately, just like the teachers who are certified, they have a spirit of service. And I guess what I have, have said, pe- said to people over the years is that it does not, a, a teacher certification does not mean that you're the only person who has the heart of a teacher. And one of the things we need to do in civil society is free up school systems I know a lot of public school principals who'd love to have this freedom, too, to get content area experts, especially in junior high and high school. I think part of the challenges there also relates to pay and the way that our sure. schools are structured um, and, their, and their pay system. I think in many cases, um, school principals or school leaders have to define their school finance in very narrow buckets, which does not allow them to make different decisions or group funding in a way that would allow them to pay teachers higher salaries, for example. Um, and that's that's an issue for, for talent, which is another reason why charters are a good thing is because they can, they can structure their budgets a little bit differently than traditional public schools. Sure. So one of the things that you do in, in your job is read a lot of research. I, I presume you, you do some of that yourself. And we have here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, along with Excel and Ed and a couple of other organizations, released a paper recently. This is about Texas in particular, but Texas, what we learned from this study is that what's going on in Texas is instructive for the rest of society. I was about to say emblematic, but in fact, it's not emblematic. It's instructive because it's a little bit different. That is, the charter school landscape here in Texas is. Our Texas listeners will find this really, really interesting. Our non-Texas listeners, of, of whom we have many, will will bear with us because the lesson in Texas is so instructive. But why don't you, because you're the expert on this, give us the two or three takeaways from this study for listeners all over the United States. Sure. Texas has a great charter school um, ecosystem. Um, They have one of the best charter school movements or most renowned charter school movements in the country. You have founded excellent organizations like KIPP, like Yes Prep, uh, Uplift, um, Idea Public Schools, some folks that are very well known throughout the country. And so from that uh, perspective, Texas has been quite successful in the charter school movement. Unfortunately, it's never been harder to get a charter approved than it is today in Texas. And uh, that's a problem because, uh, as I alluded earlier, there's uh, over 130,000 people waiting to get into charters. So charter schools in Texas can't keep up with the demand. The demand is much higher um, than the available seats. Um, the paper talks about how the history of, of charters in Texas um, developed from you know, the late 90s to today. 
in Generation 3, which was like the third year that they approved charter schools, there was a decision to approve every single application. I think it was 109 charter schools that were approved. And 60% of those charters ended up closing at some point because there was not a vetting process. It was um, quite lax. Um, and the charter school movement in Texas spent a lot of time recovering from that time and cleaning up that mess. And as a result, the regulation pendulum, for lack of a better word, has swung way far to the other direction. And um, So too much regulation. There's, there's too much regulation mm -hmm. specifically related to um, the application process and how charters get approved. So it'd be fair to call that a barrier of entry? It's a huge barrier of entry because not only is it time consuming, but it's it's uh, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, we're talking about charter applications that rival the length of, of Tolstoy. I mean, it's it's what used to be a 50 page application is like 400 pages or Goodness. more. Um, and so uh, yesterday I was on a panel with Chris Barbick, founder of Yes Prep. And he said that he was able to write his application back 20 years ago on nights and weekends with a buddy. Mm -hmm. And that turned into one of the best charter systems in the country. Um, I think it would be hard pressed for the next Chris Barbick to do that today, especially when it's three to 400 pages, um, which means that's a huge barrier to teachers who have a strong passion about um, meeting a specific need or parents who want to come together and meet a specific need and it's really um, limited the new charters to charter systems that already exist. Makes it more corporate right which which isn't necessarily bad intrinsically bad yeah. but what it does do is develop this this barrier this obstacle to one of the beautiful parts of the origins of the charter school movement which is as you described had emanated from this need in a community and parents and maybe some some really good teachers coming together to farm a, a charter school losing that in education is I, I would say a tragedy for our kids I completely agree well and not only that it's probably undemocratic I mean if you look at if you think about democracy Democracy is more than an election, first of all. It includes institutions and checks and balances. Um, but if you look at the book Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, and he came through, what did he see when he visited America? He saw that people, American people, formed associations, free associations, to solve their most immediate needs. There was a fire, so they formed a fire department. Um, they needed a school, so they built schools. Um, these associations are American to the core. And charter schools um, are just as American as those free associations were back in the 1830s. Um, and that is, charter schools allow people to solve their most immediate needs unless they can't fill out a 300 or 400 application page application. Which would drive the Tocqueville nuts. Yeah, it would. And so the point of this paper and the point of this um, project is to highlight how difficult it is to get a charter and to recommend some changes that would not swing the pendulum back to Generation 3, but is a form of moderation in allowing folks 
to solve their own problems by submitting charter applications. So thank you for that explanation. What is the charter school landscape in other states that have charter school laws? So there's 44 states that have charter school laws um, and the, they vary widely in terms of how many charters and what their charter school laws say. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Virginia has, I think, nine charter schools, and they've had a law for a long time, but their, con their state constitution is extremely restrictive in how those charter schools are formed and run. So the governance structure is very different than Texas, where you have a strong statewide authorizer in the Texas Education Agency, right? California is different. They have, uh, out of the 7,000 charter schools nationwide, they have like 1,600 charter schools. Uh, and they're based on a district system. So you apply to the district. If you get denied, you apply to the county. If you get denied, you apply to the state. So there's an appeal system. In Hawaii, it's even different than that, where there's only really one school district, one local education agency. So all of the charters go through that system. Um, so I would encourage people, when you talk about charters, try and, I've generalized in this conversation, but try not to generalize too much because there are so many specificities, especially state-specific uh, differences, um, that you may be talking past each other in a conversation. You know, charters in Texas are like this, but that's really different than, let's say, New Orleans, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it almost everywhere there are a lot of things we can say about your excellent response but for the average listener even if they don't have school-aged kids maybe they don't even think they care about charter schools that you've made a really compelling case that charter schools matter they're a real important part of of the education system to the extent that that we like the system and that for the purposes of sustaining civil society they are quintessentially american as actually a really a compelling argument for people to learn more about charters just from the standpoint of civil society to say nothing of the policy if, if in fact they want to get into that that level of detail it's a check and a balance I mean mm -hmm. look uh, local school boards in many cases have some have have a monopoly on public education in a given geographic area um, and if you don't like monopolies then you should love charter schools because charter schools are a check and a balance on that localized monopoly. And they're really institutions that empower parental choice. I mean, by their, their very origin, they empower parental choice. And, of course, here on the Foundation Podcast, we love that, especially when, when parents are getting together in, in groups, forming communities, and those turn into things like charter schools. Kids benefit because... We, we often talk about the free market or the marketplace, and it's important to remember that that's not some abstract kind of evil thing. It is the culmination. It is the result of people like you and me getting together and deciding that we have some shared needs. There is a, there is a demand, in other words, and let's go make sure that there is a supply. And so in some states in the United States, that demand for better educational options has been met by the supply of charter schools. Right. But here in Texas, because of over-regulation, very unfittingly in, in the state of Texas where liberty reigns, we have a bottleneck in a state that has an annual growth rate that exceeds that of most states in the United States, 6.1 million school-aged children just this year in 2018. And 
I would suspect in a couple years, 200,000 kids waiting on charter school waiting lists. It's preposterous, just to put a really fine point on it. <laughs> yeah, and I would, I would add to that. I'd say that in most cases, I would say uh, the demand for quality education is not being met in most states. So Texas has that in common. I would say that in some states, they've used charters uh, more liberally. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a literal, sure. literal way. Sure. Um, What's the future for charter schools and for American education? I think the future of education looks a lot like families determining what's best for their kid and mm-hmm. being able to choose between more than one good option. Whether that's a private school, whether that's a charter school, it could even be the traditional public school down the street. Sure. But I think the future of American education is bright, and I think that it looks like more than one quality option for each family. I tell you, one of the the things that makes me optimistic, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about that and and certainly share your, your view, is that people are beginning to realize, just average Americans beginning to realize that the regulatory regime is stifling opportunity. If it's, if it's stifling opportunity, if you and I want to create some small business, that's bad enough. That's unjust. It is particularly so in the world of education because ultimately the reason we're trying to deliver this education is for the education of a young person and for people, a people, that is Americans, who believe so fervently in the optimism of the future and hopefulness in the same way de Tocqueville would see that, in the same way our founders would see that, we're really beginning to stunt the growth, literally uh, the intellectual growth of kids, and as a result, we're stunting the growth of civil society. I don't think that is an overstatement regarding education generally. I'm a little more hopeful, not because I disagree with you, but because I believe in kids and their ability to succeed in spite of what we do or don't do to them. And in many cases, kids are going to be successful regardless of whether whether you uh, send them to a given school or not, because kids become adults. And um, and I just I, I I believe that firmly in my heart that um, kids are smarter than we think they are. As my mama said, if you treat kids like they're smart, then they will be. Yep, and you know that from your educational experience. Yeah. So where do we go to learn more? Go to learn more. Um, you can check out the, uh, the new report at excelined.org. It's also uh, on TPPF's website. Texaspolicy.com, but we invite you in particular to go to excelined.org. Um, and you can also check our charter resources, What is a Charter School, on our website. And there's more resources there under the Opportunity tab. Sure. Sam Duell, you are a great American. Thank you so much, very genuinely, from all of us in Texas for doing what you do every day with the the heart of a teacher, the civility of of a great American. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast, brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.